Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at verse 13 for tonight's sermon text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at verse 13. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would encourage us with these words. That you would help us to uh, set our minds on things above and things to come and release us from thinking about and having our minds set upon things below and the things of the past. Lord, we pray that you would help us and that you would illumine our minds that we might understand this passage and we may believe it and live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So, If you're normal, it's a good way to start a sermon. If you're normal, you're going to give gifts uh, on December 25th and celebrate uh, the gift of Jesus Christ to us. And um, on Christmas Day and... During the, the Advent season, we celebrate with the giving of gifts because the Son of God was given for our salvation, right? Very simple. We, um, we reflect on that and we give one another gifts and celebrate that salvation that came some 2,000 years ago. He came into the world to redeem, to save, to fix that which is broken, to become sin for a sinful people. This is what the word Advent means. The, the word is derived from the Latin Adventus, which means coming. It's just about what, uh, what is coming. And so as we think about Advent and Christ coming on that night 2,000-some years ago, we can easily slip again into nostalgia. Uh, this is the season of any season of nostalgia, right? We we put up Christmas trees and we think wistfully of our childhood um, and just the, the warmth of the house and the, the smell of cookies and all the smells and sights and scents are all uh, taking us back, right? 
Christmas uh, music uh, that makes no sense at all, right, still takes us back, right, the stupid, stupid Christmas songs that we hear on the radio. Even that stuff takes us back to the warmth and joy and fellowship that we, in those, you know, days anticipating Christmas. Um, it's all very nostalgic, isn't it? Nostalgia is that longing for the past, that longing for a sort of idealized or romanticized past. We have a tendency when we think of the past, strangely enough, to um, forget much of the pain and remember much of the good um, for what it's, uh, what it's worth. And so nostalgia is, is that wistful longing to have now what was good in the past. At a certain at certain points, the Israelites were nostalgic for the pots of meat and garlic in Egypt. Right? They thought back and they saw that those, uh, those pots of meat, those leeks and garlic were really quite good, even though they were suffering under the oppression of, of Pharaoh and in slavery, in bondage. Yet, they remember the pots of meat. And their romanticizing of their past makes them forget about that brutal slavery. It's very easy for you and me to think of the happiest days of our lives, right? The past, our childhood, vacations, um, college days, honeymoon, whatever. And wish that now was like then. And before we know it, we've begun living in the past, living for the past rather than looking for that which lies ahead. And then discontentment starts to dig in when we live in that manner. And today, today can't ever compete. Today can't ever compete with a romanticized past. Right? It just can't compete. Nostalgia is not helpful in the end, and I would argue not the way that Christians are to live. We can get caught up in living in the past, exclusively in the past. All of Advent, all of Christmas, we think back on those days in Bethlehem, how sweet and, and uh, simple and beautiful. We romanticize the coming of Jesus in the, in the midst of a, a fallen world racked with plague, with pain, with war, disease, struggle, these these days, those days of the past are what we want. And, and so most of our Christmas songs um, we sing embolden that nostalgia. We forget the parts in the Christmas story about Herod killing the male children under the age of two, don't we? We just forget that, that horror, that holocaust that happened during the birth or shortly after the birth of Christ. So the problem with nostalgia is that a wistful longing for the past causes us to ignore what is coming, what lies ahead for us, right? Live your life with a nostalgic longing and you will find that you can't recreate the wonders of the past. The delights of the past are not quite what they are or were built up in your mind to be, and you will stop looking forward to the better um, that is to come. And so, again, this is, this is not the way that Christians are to live. We should set ourselves apart from Egypt in this respect. Um, what is to come is better. 
right? It is more glorious. It, it is stable. It is everlasting. It is not plastered with fallenness and sin and the world and temptations and the domain of the evil one. Right? Yes, God is gracious. He gives us good gifts in this life, but that which is to come will give us the right perspective on the taintedness of everything we experience now and in this life. The Apostle Paul had that perspective, right? And one that I want us to think about tonight. Paul wrote this to the Philippian church, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Right, so heaven's joys will far surpass those of the earth. I mean, that is like such an obnoxiously stupid statement to make, right? I mean, it's just so obvious. But how often do our minds actually believe that and dwell on that and hope in that and actually feel that, right? There will be no sin. There will be no suffering. There will be no taint of sin and suffering in the good things we enjoy in heaven. Such, um, such glories Scripture describes for us live nostalgically, though, right? Live in the past. Always be looking back, and you'll find yourself saying, you know, oh, the good life about things far less significant and glorious than dwelling in the presence of God eternally. Right? Kicking your feet up and saying, it doesn't get much better than this, is sort of an unchristian statement. <laughs> of course it gets much, much, much better than this. Yes, this side of glory. Uh, there are times when God blesses us with good things and we can rejoice in that, but uh, hear what I'm saying. If our, our view of this life is that it was or is spectacularly good or that it will be spectacularly good at some point, we don't have our minds set on things above, right? We may, we may not truly appreciate what God has in store for those who are His through faith in Jesus Christ. We live as if, as if uh, this world is all we want, in keeping with this short-sightedness, we must have our joy here and now, our relationships here and now, right? our sensations here and now, our entertainments here and now, our comforts, we must have them here and now. We build storehouses for our treasures and fill them with the hopes and desires of the world. Right? Heaven is a long, long, long way off, we assume, and it's very theoretical. Uh, we'll not wait to have that which is within reach. And so let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We lift our cups with the atheist and we sing that refrain in harmony with the atheist, right? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Even when Israel was told to memorialize and remember, right, as we did this morning, we looked back to the, the cross, we looked back to Jesus' sacrifice. Even when Israel was told to memorialize, to remember what had happened to them in the past, it was to strengthen them to depend upon God's faithfulness for the future. 
Right? That's what it, it is looking back to God's faithfulness so that we might look to the future with hope, with faithfulness. It was not nostalgia, right? It was not just this, oh, those were the, those were the good old days. Not at all. It's looking back and saying God was faithful then and he will be faithful in the future. He will be faithful ahead. Now, considering the shortness of this life, right, the shortness of this life and the compared especially to eternal life, uh, not a million or a trillion years, but innumerable unending years, um, why can't we live as if we have a fixed, wonderful destination and a glorious, unending feast for our souls just ahead of us, right? Considering just the tiny sliver of your existence that is this life, we should be able to, to put our minds on what lies ahead. We will look back after we've been worshiping the Lord and, and enjoying His glory for 10,000 years and think, wow, what, what time, what a waste it was for me to get so wrapped up in the world. <clears throat> um, we, we really do have a tendency to uh, love that which is broken and half-baked and, and tainted. We fix our minds on these things so often, and yet we have, we have uh, eternity ahead of, of paradise. 1 Corinthians 2, 9-10, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Right? So what lies ahead God has prepared in the hearts of man, we can't even, we can't even begin to comprehend the glory of it. Jesus said, He who loves his life loses it. Now think of that. He who loves his life loses it. Every modern psychologist goes crazy when they read words like this of Jesus because it seems, and then he has the audacity, right, to say you should hate your life. You should hate mother and father and sister and brother and wife and children and even your own life. And it's only the Christian who can figure that out, who can um, parse what that means. But Jesus said, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Right? He who hates his life. Now, now what does that mean? Does that mean we hang our heads all the time, that we're... That we're um, that, that we're dour, that we're downcast, that we're, we're always negative, that we're, we're, um, we are hating everything around us, right? That just everything, we, we immediately have a reaction of, oh, I hate that. Um, well, um, no, right? It is, it is to put in relief the joy that we have in looking forward, right? It is not getting wrapped up in nostalgia. It's not getting wrapped up in this life. It's holding to this life very loosely. 
right? And to the point where someone who clings to life so tightly would say that, well, that, that guy, why does he not love these things? Why does he not follow the way I'm following? Why does he not pursue his lusts and his, his earthly dreams and money and greed? Why does he not do those things? It's like he hates life. And that's right. That's how it should be. That's how we should stand different than the Egyptian. So what lies ahead? The remembrance of Christ's first advent should be much deeper than simplistic nostalgia. We think back to Jesus' first coming in our minds should reflexively launch forward to his second coming. That's what you should always do. One of the things that drives me crazy about the church calendar, right, which we loosely follow. We could, we could be obnoxious and have a church calendar name for every Sunday of the year, right? One of the reasons I find that obnoxious is once you get to Advent, you act like Jesus hasn't come. And you play through the events of the first Advent. And then, you know, it's, it's just like this play-acting thing. But we know all of that. That happened long ago. And so, um, but what I like about Advent is if we use it as a launching point for thinking about the second Advent, right? For looking ahead to the things that come. There, there's too much play acting in the Christian life, right? We should just deal with reality. We should deal with things as they are. And um, not n- play acting in Advent and following the church calendar in that respect is nostalgic. Right, but here, here is the second coming described by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, right, the passage we read. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, very simple, right, faith is very simple. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's it. If you believe that, you, you will follow in his train. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So notice the contrast between the first and second advent. Whereas the first was understated, quiet, we talked about that this morning, it was ordinary, except for what the shepherds experienced, but in in that immediate surrounding of Jesus... It was a very quiet event. It was very ordinary. It was just like any other birth. So whereas the first was understated, the second is nothing like that. It's nothing of the sort, right? Jesus descends from heaven with a shout. And literally, the the Greek means a cry of command, right? He comes out with commanding shouts, right? This is, it's not simply just a... um, a yee-haw, but it is, as Luther describes it, a war cry, right? He comes with the commands of war coming from his mouth. It is Jesus as the general of the armies of God, 
the creator of every man, issuing a stern command. And we don't, we don't know the words of this command, but this is the backdrop. This is the scene from the passage we read earlier, Revelation 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is fit, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Right? His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. It's very different than he was born, he was clothed, he was laid in a manger to sleep. Right? I mean, there is, there is a... Uh, this is black and white. Accompanying his commands, there's the voice of the archangel. Right? I, I don't know what that sounds like. I don't know what the voice of the angel, archangel sounds like, but everywhere in the book of Revelation where an angel speaks, it says they speak with a mega voice, to use the, the Greek, the mega voice, a loud voice. Right? It doesn't seem that angels can be quiet. Seems what they do, they, they do very loudly, right? In addition to the, the, the loud voice of the archangel is the trumpet of God, blasting. In Matthew 24, 31, we read about this trumpet. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. In the book of Revelation, there are seven trumpets given to seven angels, each pronouncing a judgment upon the earth. And here, though, the trumpet is God's trumpet. It's not the trumpet of the angels. This is God's trumpet. Right? The first advent announces peace. It announces a Savior. It announces the graciousness and mercy of a loving Father. The God of wrath, angry at man's sins, enters the world in a stable as a man to announce peace, right? It's perfectly appropriate to what, uh, to what he's going to accomplish. He's bringing peace to man. The second advent proclaims war, right? War on the nations, War on the peoples who do not bow their knees to the second Adam, born of a woman and risen from the dead. And the enmity and strife and warfare will come to an end by the scorching judgment of the Son of God. Peace is no longer announced. Peace is enforced by the Son of God. The infant Jesus who is swaddled in cloths and laid in a manger, the Jesus who lived among a sinful people and healed their diseases and spoke of his Father's glory, right? The Jesus who was lifted into the air on, on the cross, being insulted and being silent, right? Bleeding, suffering, gasping for breath. The Son of God, forsaken by his Father, comes again in the future. And when, and, and he who, uh, he who asked that the cup be taken from him, but who went forward and drank the cup of God's wrath, now 
comes and treads in the very winepress of the wrath of God. The fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And you know what he does? He, as he treads that winepress, he takes that vintage and he feeds it to the whore Babylon. And rather than a star announcing his quiet birth, drawing man to him, the second coming of Jesus will cause those who do not know him to run and to hide. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? What a question, right? Who is able to stand? Here's the glory. When Jesus comes, the dead in Christ, and those who are still alive in Christ will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and they shall always be then with the Lord. Those who are in Christ are able to stand. They're able to stand when Jesus returns. Angry. They are able to stand. So this fearsome day I just described is the day of glory for God's people. right? Rather than calling for the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from, the pres- from His presence, God's people will be meeting Jesus in the air. Right? I have no clue what that's like. I don't, I don't even know what to say about that. I take it as what it says, that it'll be an elevation and I will not be afraid of heights at that point. Right? The, God's people will meet Jesus in the air and there with Jesus they will remain forever. They are not hiding. They are coming to Him where they will remain forever. They will forever abide then in God's love. Right? And it's worth, it's worth saying that I think, I think what we're told in Scripture is that we meet the Lord in the air and we join Him as He descends to earth with the new Jerusalem. Right? So we're meeting Him in the air just so that we can finish the trip of that new Jerusalem down to the new heavens and new earth. Right? And there we will, we will remain forever in the presence of the Lord as God lives among His people. Right? I mean, I've got, again, I've got Jonathan Edwards' sermon on love in this, this sermon, and I don't think I can share it again. I think you're sick of it, right? Having a world of love. But just think of that. That's, that, is what, that is the eternity that we will exist in. That world of love where love is reigning and love has conquered our hearts completely. And, and we will see that mutual and eternal love that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally enjoyed. And we will enter into that. And we won't, it won't be tainted by our sin at all because our sin will have been done away with, right? And so, there will be no obstacle, Edward says, to hinder access to this this infinite fountain of love, the eternal three in one. 
There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory and beams of love. And there this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams and rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransom may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment. And their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. Now, if you don't know the love of Christ, that seems absurd to you, and it seems kind of superficial, and it seems kind of um, ridiculous, right? If Satan has your heart so heartened, if you are so under the power of the evil one, then you will hear this as, well, you know, that sounds hokey and strange to me, and I'd probably rather not be there. But for those who know the love of Christ, if the love of Christ has been poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit, there is nothing you would rather experience than that joy and love in heaven in His presence. Now knowing these things lie ahead, the Apostle Paul in verse um, 18 says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Paul commends Comfort coming from looking forward to what lies ahead. Not being nostalgic about the past and wistful about things gone by. Uh, This is the Christian life, looking forward to that which lies ahead, living for Jesus' return, preparing, in fact, for that return, and warning our children and our neighbors to prepare as well. Right? That's evangelism. Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because he's, he's going to be angry. He's going to be very, very, very angry when he comes back. And he's going to destroy the nations. And he's going to destroy those who have not loved his appearing. So what, do, what difference does it make looking back or looking forward? Well, again, those who look back, who live for the past, think there is much glory in the things of this earth. Those who look forward think the only glory, however much glory this world has given them, is that which lies ahead. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed... Right, looking forward, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So looking forward, Paul is commending there. Second, those who look back will never be satisfied. Present suffering will only make the past seem that much more glorious. But the past is past. Those who look forward know that their suffering is powerful in preparing them for heaven. That's what our afflictions come to us for. It is to make us fit vessels to live in the presence of God eternally. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension or all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Third, those who look back will not pursue God in His holiness. 
think of that. This, there's a fundamental denial of the good of sanctification or the delight of the growth and holiness by those who only want to return to the past. Seriously, you want to return to the past? You want to return to 20 years ago when you hadn't gone through 20 years of sanctification by the Lord's afflictions? You want to go back to that? You really want what you had in high school? Right? Romance? <laughs> Not even. <laughs> um, I mean, along with everything else that you felt and lived for and thought was important? High school is so hard. Teenage years are so hard. They're so hard. Because you, ha you, you have no clue how in bondage to your emotions you are. You know? You just don't. And so, have mercy upon teenagers, please. It's very, very difficult. Those who think this world has offered them something truly lasting are miserably short-sighted. To pursue the past is, in most cases, to pursue what merely feels good or what just felt good. Or it's to pursue what we remember, you know. Those who look forward thinking upon Christ's powerful return, right? Thinking forward to the glorious things that are to come. This is better than looking forward to vacation. It's better than looking forward to a birthday party. It's better than anything like that. It's more spectacular and cataclysmic than all those things by far. Those who look forward thinking upon Christ's powerful return will be zealous not for earthly treasure, not for earthly vibes, but for heavenly treasure. Right? And therefore, we'll live in such a way as to gain that reward. We'll live in such a way that they actually think about storing treasures in heaven. There to enjoy because it glorified God. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Right? Everyone who has this hope of being in the presence of Jesus one day purifies himself in anticipation of that, right? And so that's why I say those with minds fixed on the past don't care about their sanctification. Those who have their minds fixed on heaven think that, that it, is, it is glorious to be pure because the one I'm going to live with is pure. Fourth, those who look back who live for the past will not be prepared when Jesus returns. They will not live circumspectly. Th those who uh, live for Jesus' return will live in such a way as to be ready for that return. They will live soberly. Matthew 24, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. 
Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night of, time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Fifth, those who live a nostalgic life will be the most unhappy of all. Jesus calls us to hate even our present lives. Those who, in a sense, despise the past, who despise the now, but look to the great day of the Lord, the second advent, will be filled with joy, though continuing to slog through this fallen world. Continuing to endure, right? Endure the hardship of this And that's what it is. It's fallen. It is hard. It is hardship to endure through this world. And yet, if this life is all that you think you have, well, then it's glorious. Right? If you think this is all you have, then then it's it's pretty incredible. But we know that this is not all there is. We know that this is faulty, that this is broken, that this is not uh, not yet God bringing together all things in, um, in his redemption. Think of the best things of this life and contrast them with this happiness described in the last chapter of the Bible. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Think of that moment. Washing the robes and the blood of Christ. Taking of the fruit of the tree of life and eating it and living forever in that sinless perfection that you've been given by God and entering into that city, that city where there are no idolaters there are no there are no uh, dogs right there there's nothing to bother you there is per- perfect protection by God almighty there's perfect peace everything is ordered everything is as it should be everything is is um, basking in the the very light of the son of God as he casts his radiance around that city that is where God's people will live. And so this year during your Advent, Christmas traditions, whatever they may be, think forward. Think forward. Think forward to Jesus' second coming and live accordingly. That will make every day like Christmas Eve, right? That will make every day a day of anticipation, a day of of longing to be elsewhere. Right? A day of holding this life very loosely, even, even the best parts of it, the joyful um, parts of it, the, the love you have with your wife, the love you have with your children, right? those glorious things that God has given to us will pale in comparison to the joy that we will feel in the presence of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are easily wrapped up in this world. The devil tempts us to 
fix our minds on this world to be discontented continually because of God's dispensations. We, we are um, brought down uh, when things don't go as we had intended. We, we have emotions that wage war and drag us down to earth. Uh, Father, we, are, we suffer under, under the fallenness of this world and we suffer because of our own sin. Uh, much of which drags us down the earth. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to set our minds on things above, that you would take them off of this world, that we would, we would delight in that which is to come, and those things would become more real to us than the presence that we can touch and feel. So give us spiritual eyes. Help us to set our minds on the eternal and not the temporal. Lord, help us to look forward. Help us to live for the future which for your children is good, no matter what afflictions we suffer in this life. Our future is, is guaranteed by Christ's resurrection and ascension. And we are grateful, Father, that we will follow him. Lord, we, we ask you to help us in this and that you would be glorified in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.